Welcome to Candela. I'm Christopher Hooten. In this episode, my co-host Alan Scheller and I speak with Joel Merowitz, a street photographer from the Bronx. An early adopter of colour, Joel has captured some iconic street scenes in New York and other cities, his photographs often providing a rush of different human moments all in one frame. Here, we get the Leica Hall of Fame member's inspiring take on art and discipline, along with an account of his coverage of 9-11, during which Joel was the only photographer allowed unrestricted access to Ground Zero. We hope you enjoy. It's the privilege to have Joel Merowitz here on Candela. How are you, Joel? I'm as good as can be during this pandemic. I feel like I'm, you know, hiding out from it. Yep, indeed, we all are, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, in, in a way, it's kind of peaceful and sobering at the same time. It forces a lot of introspection. Yeah. So we, we normally start by asking guests how they got into their craft, but I uh, wanted to ask a question just straight out, sure. uh, which was about how the the streets themselves have changed so much. And I know that you've talked about the presence of mobile phones being well, having impacted how things are nowadays. Just wondered what your thoughts are on that, if you could expand on it a bit, and and if you think it's uh, a worse time now to be a, a photographer in that genre, or, or if it's just different. Um, I think it is a worse time to be a street photographer right now. Back in the 60s when I began, there was a kind of worldwide innocence. Nobody thought mm. if you took a picture on the street that you were taking a picture of them. You know, I, I could tell you how many times people just would turn over their shoulder as if I was photographing something down the street when I was actually making a picture of them in the street. So that kind of innocence before the idea of celebrity, and this is important because I believe this notion of celebrity and the fact that anybody with a computer could make their own program or platform and, and express themselves has charged the atmosphere with this notion of wanting to be a celebrity just for being a celebrity rather than for some other characteristic or quality. Mm. And so that kind of awareness and the advent of the smartphone has changed the way street life works. People are nervous in general, especially if they have children on the street and you seem to be making a picture in which the kid might appear. People are worried you're going to put them on the internet, you're going to do something bad with their image. Mm. Um, this was never the case. And so in that period of innocence and freedom, street photography flourished. There was a sense of observing the human condition without the human condition coming back at you and, and saying no or trying in any way to nullify your efforts. And there were no governments who were putting, at least not in the Western world, who were putting a stop to that kind of behavior. You know, in France a few years ago, there was that um, position that the government took that you couldn't photograph public life on the streets. And imagine Cartier-Bresson mm. uh, having to work within that kind of restriction. Yeah, for Isn't sure. Is there not um, an argument, or playing devil's advocate a little bit, that now that photographers are so celebrated that when someone sees themselves being photographed on the street, they maybe know that the person's going to use them online in an artistic way, whereas when you were first starting to shoot when the discipline didn't really exist, they might have been, they might have thought, who is this kind of creep, like who's doing it for his own purposes, I guess, maybe? It's, it's a mixed bag, Chris. I, I, I tell you, the... The fact is that it's not so altruistic when if people see you taking a photograph that they may be and that they think you're going to do it for your art purposes, they may think that you're going to use them in some commercial way mm. to make money off of them mm. or to poke fun at them. I mean, if you if you look at Instagram feeds and you know, post an interesting photograph and then there are 50 comments, 40 of those comments will be goofy responses making fun about something in the picture rather than saying, you know, it's beautifully made, the timing was terrific, the light's beautiful, interesting subject matter, I never saw. I mean, there's no dialogue, basically. It's mm. people sort of making wisecracks. And I, and I think that that's probably the greater 
part of humanity is either fearful or taking the wise guy stance rather than thinking, oh, this person taking a picture on the streets making art. So, but you'd yeah. have to talk to younger photographers about that same thing because I can tell you as an older man now, and even though I'm still agile and quick on my feet and I can still play the invisible game pretty well, mm -hmm. I'm still an 80-year-old guy. So if I take a picture of a 30-year-old of a woman who's attractive, I'm not that young 30-year-old guy who was, you know, hitting on her or enjoying her. I'm now somebody with a different... Um, I come from a different place. And so it's mm. just, there's a slight bit of suspicion in there. But I think if you would talk to younger street photographers today, you might find a different, a different quality response. Well, that's the thing. The, the younger photographers haven't had uh, exposure to both of, the, of these kinds of environments. They've just had, you know, we've got what there is now. But it's it's very interesting that how Instagram has, like you said, it is kind of reducing photography in some ways to just uh, like a base entertainment. Yeah, you, you're right that people don't really uh, engage with the picture on a on a level other than just putting like a, an emoji. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, or something. I see. I see both sides to the, the coin there. I know Matt Stewart, who we've got coming up on the podcast. I know he has a different take on it, and he thinks it's quite a good, an easy time to be um, photographing in the street. But I do see your point, Joel, about comments and stuff like I find that in journalism a lot that now you can slave away on an article that might be 10,000 words and then someone can literally just come in and be like what a dick is the comment and it's right. just like as if they've just kind of completely yeah. just undermined the entire piece right. in three words it's kind of hard to escape it's, it's like it's like everybody's looking for a punchline yeah yeah you yeah. know I mean they're joke okay but there is another characteristic of the street that that has to be brought up here because of the cell phone Everybody's on the street making this gesture, holding the phone. So any photograph you make on the street has in it all these floating objects, you know, that, that everyone's holding. And it kind of derails the pictures. I know Matt very well. We've, we know each other more than 10 years and walk the streets together here too. And mm -hmm. although we both can have fun on the streets when we're shooting, there's still this... Um, overriding um, image factor of these phones. And so you take a picture and there's in the picture there are a dozen people and eight of them are on a cell phone. It derails the picture a little bit because it looks like you're making a picture about people with cell phones. Mm. Yeah. You understand? It, the cell phone visibility masks the, the other elements that you might be trying to make a picture about. It has, it, so it, it I think it makes the environment, the visual environment, cluttered in a way that is, uh, I don't know, it lessens, it lowers the temperature mm. of the, the visual um, moment that you're responding to. And, you know, it's hard to make pictures without people in the picture that are, that are on telephones. I mean, it's just it's our a, reality. It's quite a win, though, when, when I get one where it's like a seeming lapse in that, uh, you know, in that phone obsession and then you capture something or just two people interacting and it's like, yes, yeah, there you go. Yes, it I, still happens. It yeah, still yeah. happens. You know, I, I, I tell you, on, on my Instagram feed, because I run a lot of pictures out of my archive, you know, I've got thousands and thousands of unseen photographs. It's an opportunity mm. to kind of play with different themes. So many people say over and over again, about pictures made in the 70s and 80s, even the 90s, no telephones, no cell phones, you know. Mm. People are walking around relating to each other. And see, and that's, the, I, I think, part of the visual dynamic on the street is the way eye, li eye lines, sight lines connect. When you make, when you're the observer and you're watching the whole play of life on the street, all of those things are part of the elasticity of the street. So when you have the cell phones there, somehow those people aren't interacting with others. They're in their own little cubicle on the street talking to the cell phone. Mm. So there's that physical and emotional disconnect. And that's part of what I think is missing in the pictures as well. 
Yeah, I that, that sense of like the elasticity of the street comes across really strongly in your work as a, a kinetic feeling. Um, Thanks. A, a lot of, you know, photog- photographs can be about, uh, even taken on the street, are about the relationship between the photographer and the person being photographed or is there someone in their own little world? But you seem to often be drawn to people interacting with other people on the street and often people from of de- very different stripes and different walks of life. Yes, well, you know, the human comedy is played out on the stage of the street. And so on any cross-section of, let's say, Fifth Avenue, you know, you have 12 people across. And there are, if, if you're really watching the whole street, not just for one small incident, if you're watching the interplay on the street, which is what I trained myself to do, then you begin to see how simultaneously different things are happening and you can play them off against each other and you, in a sense, invent the content. It isn't like a joke in the middle of the frame. It was about making photographs, not taking pictures. And I think that distinction, particularly from my generation, we were really working hard with the concept of making a photographic work. Mm out of the stuff of everyday life, which is invisible to most people. But if you learn how to pay attention and you have a sense of timing in which you can predict to yourself what might happen 10 seconds, 15 seconds up the street when you see someone coming, Mm. you can position yourself in ways that you might sort of set the trap for this interaction to make it. And that's why the pictures from that era look different because the mindset of photographers because after all in the 60s photography was gaining a newfound um, visibility Mm. john charkovsky was the curator at the museum of modern art and he brought a whole different um, concept to what photography could be and he appreciated street photography it wasn't just fashion or you know landscapes or uh, uh, still lives, or the forms that were the, quote, art forms from before, Mm. these were rugged, young, rebellious photographers in their 20s and 30s who didn't give a shit about the past, just like every young generation. When when they come into their time, they break all the rules. That's what you're supposed to do. Mm. And in a way, our rule-breaking was we wanted to get away from the kind of more static set-up uh, calculated photographs and and have this this surprise. I, I once got a phone call. I, I'll share this with you. It's not something I've I've told too many times in the past. Hmm. Um, I met Cartier Bresson on the streets of New York with Tony Ray Jones from London. Tony was my best friend for a couple of years, and we we started shooting together in color. And right around this time. St. Patrick's Day, more or less, middle of March, we were on the street photographing the end of the St. Patrick's Day parade and we bump into Cartier-Bresson. Now, I mean, not, we had never seen a picture of him, but we guessed from the way he was working that it must be him. Yeah. And Tony, Tony pushed me to go and introduce myself. I did. Bresson invited us for a coffee. We mm. talked with Cartier-Bresson, two guys who were 20 five and 23 yeah. sitting down with with the master playing it as cool as you can just like in a coffee shop you know <laughs> so then anyway so Bresson and I became sort of friends when I when I would go to Europe you know I could call him up in Paris and he would invite me over or we'd go for a walk together I mean <laughs> wow that really happened and w- one day I was in my my apartment in New York and I was actually in the bathroom on the toilet and <laughs> My wife then comes to the door and she says, Joel, there's someone on the phone for you. He says he's Cartier-Bresson. So I'm thinking it's Gary or it's Todd Papageorge because we always played dumb kid tricks like that on each other. So I go to the phone and I say, hello. And he says, Joel, it's Cartier. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we're talking. It really is him. And, and he says, I'm with John Sharkovsky in the Museum of Modern Art. And I'm looking at this new box of pictures that you left with him. And then he says, how do you do it? Cartier-Bresson <laughs> asked ask this kid 
this kid, how do you do it? Because I was pushing a certain kind of overall picture making where everything in the frame was alive and it didn't depend upon the incident. Mm, mm. That one thing in the picture to make the the picture, you know, come in come into being. Yeah. Multi, yeah, like layering. Yeah, exactly. And I think because Bresson was such a classical photographer, working with a 50 millimeter lens, working 15 feet out, so that his pictures had a kind of poise and balletic poetry to them. These kind of uh, more rugged, uh, denser pictures really describe New York City life. And it's not a place that he was comfortable photographing and it was too intense and too dense. And so for him to say that to me, I mean, it's something like, you know, it's like God coming down and <laughs> pointing the finger at you and saying, okay, today's your day, Joel. Boom. Yes. You know? So it, it was just one of those moments. But in a way, it was an earned moment. Not that I expected anything like that, but it was earned because... I was trying to push the idea of what you could see in a street photography uh, frame of reference in some way. Mm. And, and I know that there are many photographers today who are out on the street who are trying their way to reinvent street photography at a moment where there's uh, you know, issues, vis visual issues in the medium. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's... it's one thing to emulate isn't it it's another thing to to then have a style but then it's the ultimate goal is to uh to do something new and to contribute something that hasn't been done before that's it's hard though isn't it it's uh and and, and it's not really something that can just happen it's, it's it's i think i think a lot of photographers don't understand that most of it is a is like an intellectual pursuit more than a actual just going out and repeating the photos it's 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 the sitting at home and thinking about it that yeah you know I, I i think it's important that you say that because intellectual that doesn't mean the heavy weight of intellectual you know pensiveness it, in this case it means having your own idea yes about what constitutes a photograph and what is it in your work that you discovered that actually is the core most interesting way of looking at the world. And I think a lot of people just, you know, under the heading of street photography, walk around making pictures of people in the middle of the frame, looking one way or another, or looking good or at them or whatever, and they call it street photography because it's out there. But there's more than that. Mm. I mean, you know, this is a perfect moment, truly. If, it, if I wasn't a, an at-risk person, this is the moment to be out on the streets, mm. to record London or any great city in the world now, at this critical moment, to see what life looks like. And I'm sure mm -hmm. there are young artists out there now doing that. Yes, for sure. You know, and, be well, because why not? They're, they're, they're invulnerable. Yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I, I guess what you're saying is uh, you need a context within to which to make the pictures. It's not enough just, you know... Just to, I, I think a lot of people don't. Yeah, they they just kind of go out and shoot on the street, and uh, and they think that that qualifies, you know, people to be interested yeah. in their work. But it's like Bresson. I when I look at Carte Bresson's work, I, I don't see a guy just randomly snapping. I, I can see like most of his pictures. You, you can just see the uh, like a thread running between his work. And that doesn't really exist. Yeah. Uh, well, he was a humanist also. You know, I mean, he cared about human life and human behavior. He was a, a poet. He had a spiritual side to him. And, and his timing was exquisite. You know, and time, time moved a little differently then. It wasn't as speeded up as it is for us today. Mm. But, but, but I think it's important. I mean, we're on, we're on a very important point right now to discuss a little bit further. Mm. We all have, every one of us has a point of view, but we don't always know what it is. You know, we think it's just our going out. But if you analyze your work, 
If you look at, I mean, in the days of contact sheets, right, you'd have 36 pictures or 38 if you could, if you knew how to squeeze it out on a Leica. <laughs> uh, um, you'd look at those 30, 36 pictures and for, for me in general, one third would be, I would, I would red mark them in a china pencil, you know, one of those wax pencils, and I would print those 13, 15 pictures because they were what was most interesting to me. And, and I would make prints. I printed everything. I had uh, over 50,000 prints in my studio up until a year or two ago when I sold a big collection to a private collector. I sold 35,000 vintage prints to somebody. Wow. What a, load, what a load off my shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I have the negatives and I have now everything digitized. But the, the point is, I would take those let's let's call them 15 pictures and from each role and i would sit with them day after day and i would page through them so i could see what was i hitting on what was of interest to me i learned how to read my contact sheets for the work that was the most stimulating to me and then as i compressed and condensed that work into a tighter selection, I began to see threads of interesting, I'm going to call them storylines, but they're not about stories. They were like my song, I'll call them song lines. Mm. You know that, that uh, Australian story about the Aboriginal people who would sing as they walked through the countryside and they sang to their gods and their nature and, and, they, and they followed this path in a way. And I think artists make song lines, which is what you sing truest to yourself, your thoughts. Mm. And if you can then recognize which of these threads which of these songs is the one you need to develop now, you begin to then focus on that. And once you go into that single thread, it opens up. It becomes a vaster space for you to see how many other things fit into that. Mm. It's, like, it's like a subject heading in a way. And, and I believe that real artists in every discipline, do this with their work. They're liberal, they're free, they, they do all kinds of shit, and then they focus in and they see which are the interesting threads that I can weave together and make something of substance mm. that I could really pull against that gives me the kind of tension and, and durability that gives you a line of approach that you can make deeper and deeper. And for, you know, I've published 30 books now, and almost every one of those books has a thread that was something that came to me. I didn't know it beforehand. Mm. I only knew it as the work revealed it to me, and because I was open to looking for these threads, like basically saying, who am I now? I'm 30 years old. You know, I work all the time. What am I doing? And then you find out that there's one thing you do over and over again. And, and I think, you know, every serious photographer worth anything today tries to hone in on their, on their most uh, persuasive um, powers of observation. Mm. And then they, they dig in deeply and make a book out of it or make an exhibition out of it or bring it together somehow. But that's what's necessary, and and that's the intellectual side yeah. of it. Yeah. But it's not about pure intellectual. It's about instinct and and personal ideas. It's interesting. It makes me think about you know the way you perceive the world as a, a photographer and a kind of a bit of a sponge. And I think that comes across a lot in your work, where there are you know several subjects and different layers and foreground and background going on. That I kind of yeah thinking about awareness and how you kind of move down a street and are trying to multitask in a way and take it all in it makes me think of like I'm, I'm quite into meditation and a lot of it teaches you about imagining yourself as like a cloud of sensation and opening yourself up to everything that's happening around you thinking about all the different sounds all the different sensory stimulation and I think that's 
kind of important so you're not just honing in on one person too much and i was looking at one of your photos today joel where you've got um it's a street scene and you can see a hand coming out of a phone box uh a man in a suit walking down smoking a cigar who's very uh you're attracted to somehow uh two two guys passing passing bills between them in a kind of somewhat shady way you've got all these billboards in the backdrop that look very cinematic and there's so many different elements to it and it's um i mean it's a challenge to kind of keep your awareness broad enough that you can take all of that in and and it is but it, what a worthy challenge mm. don't, don't you want to be um you know perturbed by <laughs> by your work in a way that sort of you know move, moves you off of your orbit right don't they say that in in astronomy when something in orbit is goes out of orbit, they call it perturbed. Mm. It's it's like jostled by some other force, by magnetism from some other planetary body, or you know whatever whatever goes on out there. And I like to be perturbed by my work and challenge my previous assumptions. And it's it's what really. Um, works for me because like you, Chris, I, I meditated for many, many years and I was always involved with kind of Buddhist readings when I was much younger. In fact, the most influential book when I was at university was, uh, it was a book about archery by Jürgen Herigl, a German, a German philosopher, uh, Zen in the Art of Archery. Did you, did you ever hear of this no, book? I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> it, it, it was a, a book I read when I was 19 years old. My art teacher said all of us should read this book. The book was only published back then in the 50s. And it was about this philosopher who goes to study Japanese archery with archers, with one particular master archer. And he can't believe that the guy um, isn't looking and aiming. And the guy is telling him, no, I don't aim. I don't aim. If you draw the arrow and the bow beautifully, and you release it with a good open heart, it will find the target. <laughs> and so this guy says to him, this is bullshit. You, you, you know, you just, you, you. I, I can't believe this would happen. So the guy takes him downstairs <laughs> to the archery range. And then in the dark, there's only one candle, in the dark, he, and, and they don't pull the bow this way, they pull the bow facing opposite, and they pull the bow across their chest so they don't look where it goes. And then they release the arrow. So the arrow goes into the center of the target. And then he fires another arrow without looking, and it splits the arrow that's in the target. And the, the, the author, the philosopher, Jürgen Herigl, says that was it. He learned at that moment that there, are, there is such a thing as a kind of purity of being in this Zen way that if you can reach some understanding of that, it might give your purity of being and mind an opportunity to help you discover your true self. So... I, I started when I was 19 years old reading this thing, and it was like, to me, it was wondrous. Where the hell did that come from? And, and although I wasn't going to be an archer, and I didn't know I was going to be a photographer, I was a painter then. And so I tried to find how could I paint in a manner that was as liberating as that. Yeah. And that was during the time of abstract expressionism. So in a way, it was a perfect moment for that kind of liberation. Look into that book. I think you will, Chris, in particular, will, if you've, yeah, if you've yeah. meditated, Ar yeah. Zen and the Art of Archery. I like, I like that as an yeah. analogy for street photography, Zen archery. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. It, isn't it? I mean, it, doesn't it suit it? Because, you, because on impulse, you know, you're on the street and everybody's moving and suddenly you dart forward, you know, 10 feet or 15 feet so that you could be in a, a zone that you intuited had a kind of elasticity that would allow you to see something that you sensed might unfold in front of you. Mm. This, this kind of predictive thinking is part of it. It's, it's part of keeping your awareness, you know, on, on edge the whole time. Mm. 
Well, I've we've all heard the term uh, the decisive moment, of course, um, and I, I think people misinterpret what Bresson meant about. Uh, I think it kind of comes across as if you, you're like a cat, like a ninja, you know, like bam, like taking a picture like that. But I, I think that for me, when, when I'm talking to people about street photography, it's more like the uh, the anticipated moment is more what street photography is. And then the decisive moment, I suppose, is whether you got the shot or not. <laughs> but Well, it, it, it is, but you, you are the decider, right? And it's, it's your decision when or or to or not to. It's either or. And, and you have to decide. You have to intuit that this moment makes you feel whole in some way. Because you go down the street, you're an eye. Yeah. You're just a, an all-seeing eye. What is it out there that suddenly excites your eye-mind relationship mm. so that you lift the camera and make the photograph? I find that I, when I walk with a lot of young photographers, and especially if I was teaching a course, I find people are more often paralyzed. They, 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 bring, they bring the camera, but they, I mean, it's like they, they, it takes a lot for someone to commit to fire, to fire the button, the to press the button. <laughs> you know, and, and, and in those days, in my days, you only had a roll of film, 36 shots, and you had 10 rolls of film for the day. Mm. Nowadays, you can shoot a thousand pictures on your camera in the course of the day. So what the whole, what the fuck are you holding back for? <laughs> yeah. If you see something, go for you it. know, go for it, right. And, and let instinct define you and help you to understand who you really are. Mm. This is a process of self-discovery. I, I find street photography is, for me, the greatest teacher that I had in the course of my life. I should say photography has been my teacher. Mm. But street photography has given me a kind of sense of the world, like mm. how the world works, how it looks, how people behave in general. Because I, I can almost predict what people will do. Yeah, you yeah. ask any, any of the young guys who've walked down the street with me, and I'll say, look at that over there. Watch what's going to happen. And it happens. It happens. Yeah. And you think, how the hell did that happen, that, that, I, that I knew it would happen? And Didn't you say uh, in, your, in your book, I think, you said that you, that's something you kind of learned from your dad a little bit? Yeah, my, my father was a real street-wise guy in New York. You know, grew up tough in the slums of New York. He learned how to read the street. So that because he was small, he needed to protect himself. So he became a professional boxer, and he was actually uh, won the first Golden Gloves in in New York City in 1928 in a welterweight. Wow. And, and he could and he always could take care of himself. He was unafraid, man. He was on the street. If something happened, he could write in it. He would he would be the guy you want to have at your back, you know. And and so when wherever he took me. We'd be walking through neighborhoods in Brooklyn or Harlem or wherever, and, and he would say, watch this, look at this, watch what he's going to do. And, and so, and he found everything interesting. And he was a real, he was a, a kibitzer. He would talk to anybody. So in, in a way, his default manner of responding and, and, and keeping a line out there was a real way of staying engaged. And I just admired that so much when I was a kid. I thought my pop was the mayor of the block because he was, he was always, you know, stirring it up in some way. So yeah. uh, probably, you know, we all pick up stuff from our parents, both the good and the bad. <laughs> no, it's very interesting. Yeah, it sounds like he had all the qualities to make a, a great photographer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should we should talk a little bit about uh, New York because I know you you grew up in the Bronx and uh, it's such an amazing place to shoot. Um, I've always I always had a fondness for New York City, but actually I went over with Alan at the end of last year. He was doing um, he had a, uh, an exhibition there in in Midtown, and I was staying out in Brooklyn. And yeah. really, I really just sort of I was only there for a few days, but I really fell in love with it in a way that I hadn't before. Um, just how alive it is and how it continues to be, and just how immediate life is there, and how it's I almost feel like it's kind of life is happening out in the open in a way there in New York that it isn't in other cities. Like you'll be just walking down the street and someone's got a circular saw and is just like 
carving up wood on the on the sidewalk like you know, that would never happen in you know atlanta or anywhere else in america let alone in london um and it's just yeah life being lived out in the open and that's obviously what comes across in a lot of your photographs from new york so yeah. i imagine you have and to this day have a huge huge fondness for new york right I, I still do. And, you know, we're all products of our environment. We, we, we learn a pace from the place we live in. You know, if you live in a slow town, you move slowly, mm. generally. Because when you move fast, you know, people didn't understand you. They thought you were pushy or something like that. And New York is, is out there and it's, it's theatrical in some way. So g- growing up in it, the, the, the volume of it, the energies of it, become part of your cell structure in a way. And, and um, probably that's what prompted me as a, a feeling of being a native New Yorker. When, when the World Trade Center was attacked, my immediate feeling was, I got to do something to help. My city, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like a piece of me was broken. And I knew the World Trade Center. I was there when they were built. You know, I... I I photographed in Lower Manhattan a lot during those years. So in a way, that was so close to me. And mm. and I needed to find a way to be of use when that happened. I didn't want to be put, put on the shelf. And Mayor Giuliani, that fascist motherfucker, was just like that back then. He, he said no photography allowed in Ground Zero or even around it. And I thought... Screw you, buddy. You can't say no. That's the First <laughs> Amendment. You know, we have the, you know, the freedom of speech. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it the way I want it. Mm. And that's quite a book that you did. Uh, you said before we started the interview that it took a toll on your health, physically shooting there. That's a real uh, dedication to your craft. And I mean, you must have known it wasn't going to be very good for you going into a site like that. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk through kind of that experience of when, you know, how soon after, when was this and your, you know, the, the day you decided to go out and shoot, what did you do? Did you just walk out there and just, where did it take you? No, it, it took a lot of, of uh, behind the scenes planning. I was out of New York City on the day it happened. I was on Cape Cod. I was shooting something on Cape Cod. And then I wanted to come back to the city and you couldn't come back. They closed New York for five days. No in or out. So I waited and waited. And as soon as, and I lived within walking distance of the towers. You know, I lived about a, a mile and a quarter away. It's like, it's like 25 blocks away. Mm. Small blocks, an easy walk. Mm. So as soon as I could go, we went back and I immediately, on the first moment in New York, I went down to the site and I, I you know, I wanted to see. And it was all cordoned off with... Um, cyclone fencing and they had all kinds of tarpaulins over it everywhere so you couldn't get you couldn't get up to it you could get a few blocks away and I was standing in a crowd on the corner and um, there was nothing to see and I raised my camera my Leica just to look and see and suddenly I get a punch on the back on my shoulder and I turn around and it's, it's this cop and she says hey no photographs buddy this is a crime scene and I said what, what are you talking about it's the street Crime scene's in there. This is just a normal street. Don't tell me I can't take a picture. And she said, I'll take that camera away from you. I said, no, you won't. You're not taking my camera away from me. You have no rights to do that. <laughs> We're on the street. This is public street. I'm a citizen. You can't take my camera away. So New York. <laughs> we, so, so New York. So, we, so we're standing there arguing. And I said, well, what about the press? When's the press going to go in? And she, and she did this. She went. And I look around. And up the street is about 15 or so press corps with the big boom mics and the video cameras and they're tied up with yellow police tape with a tree coming out of the middle and I said when are they going in and she says I told you no photography allowed Mayor Giuliani says there is no photography in the crime scene and I stood there looking at her and over her shoulder seeing those press and the light bulb went off over my head and I thought oh I'm going to get in there. No one's allowed. I'm going to go in because that's what I could do. I had just a few years before finished Bystander, the history of street photography. So I knew about archives. I had been in so many archives and I thought, I know how to make an archive. I'll get in there and I'll make an archive of everything that goes on inside Ground Zero. Mm. 
figuring I could give it as a gift to the city or to the government or to, to something. Mm. So a, as I'm walking past all these press people, I'm thinking, who do I know? Who can I call? And I started making calls. And I, I immediately called um, the Museum of the City of New York. I didn't know anybody there, but I figured they're the History Museum. I'll call them. And I talked to the director. And fortunately, this guy had been a junior curator when I had my first show at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. He was there and he was working in the photography department for that, for, for that year. And so he knew my work. It was great fortune. And I said to him what I wanted to do and that I would consider the museum as a partner. He said, oh, I'll talk to Giuliani. I'll get you a pet. The guy was full of shit. He never did it. <laughs> Even though I already had said to him, I will use you as my, you know, my, my lever. Anyway, I searched around and searched around for a day or two, and then it occurred to me that a young man I knew was the commissioner of Manhattan's Parks. His name was Adrian Benepe. His dad was the founder of the green markets in New York, those markets that are all over New York City. Mm. <clears throat> and I... Adrian and Barry, his father, and I were good friends, and I had photographed the first green markets in New York City for his father as a favor. So I called Adrian up, and he knew me since he was a kid. I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, come to my house. He lived two blocks away from me. I went there, and he gave me a Parks Department badge. <laughs> and uh, it was... It was uh, printed on, you know what construction paper is, that kind of paper that kids use in, in yeah. uh, kindergarten and lower grades, pink, blue, green, magenta, yellow, mm -hmm. cheap shit, right? They were printing the badges on this cheap shit. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I went to the neighborhood, uh, um, you know, store with papers and, and copiers and stuff like that. And I bought all the colored papers. I took the badge home. I scanned it. And then I scanned it into every different color. So I was ready. And every time, they ch every week they would change the badges. I would just pick, pick the next color and I would put it in this little pouch I wore. Anyway, the next day, Adrian had one of his Smokies. These are guys that wear, they're like, uh, like forest rangers. They wear that funny hat called a Smokie. Anyway, one of the Smokies took me in on a little vehicle and he dropped me in the middle of Ground Zero with my little badge. And I'm wearing shorts and sneakers and a T-shirt. And I have no hat, gloves, goggles, mask, nothing. And I look around and I think, what the fuck am I doing here like yeah. this? And I think, I need to get a hard hat. And I, I look, and right in front of me, someone had erected a plywood wall. And on the wall... Is, is a hat. It's just hanging there. And I think, oh, there's my hat. I go over <laughs> and I take, it, I take it off and it says on the front, NYPD. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, on, on the back, it has an American flag. So I put the hat on, I got my badge, and then I go someplace over there and I get a pair of gloves and I get some goggles and then I got a respirator and then I got a pair of boots and then I got some overalls. Within, within an hour, I was dressed like everybody else down there. Hard hat, the whole works. I was in complete full disguise. And, and then I started working. And cops would come over to me and say, hey, no photographs allowed. The mayor said, you got to get out of here. And I would say, uh, I, I had this letter from, from the museum director. And I said, no, no, I'm the, hist the historian photographer. I'm working for the Museum of the City of New York. And here's my badge. And they would throw me out. I would go around and I would get into another end because there were holes all the way around the site. So I would keep on going in and going in and going in. But I would always get thrown out. And then I met a team of detectives. They're a different level from the cop on the street. They're smarter. you know. And um, these detectives, when they heard my story about what I was doing, decided to protect me. Wow. And for... And for 50 days, 
They took care of me. Anytime that somebody wanted to throw me out, I would say, wait a second, you got to talk to my lieutenant. And I would call the lieutenant detective and he'd get on the phone. He was like, no, he's our guy. Bring him to me. And the cop would have to walk me to where the lieutenant was. So I, I had cover. And then when they left after 50 straight days, they took me into police headquarters at night, took me upstairs and had me photographed, fingerprinted, barcoded, and they issued me an NYPD ID band patch <laughs> with the American flag, the NYPD thing, my face, and on it, it said, mayoral photographer. Uh, that's nobody, lovely. nobody could stop me. <laughs> Anytime somebody would stop me, I would just say, oh, right this way, sir. Right this way, sir. <laughs> I even used it to get on airplanes, you know, and when I would, they would see my NYPD badge, they would say to me, like the, uh, the guy at the desk would say, are you carrying? Which means that you got a yeah. gun. You know, right? Are you carrying? Yeah. I said, no, no, I'm not, couple, not carrying today. A couple to of likers. Not carrying today. I got all, I, exactly. I, I, would, I would pull up my camera and I would say, is this, this is it. Anyway, that, that, that was how it, so it took me, it took me the five days to get down. And then it took me about three or four days to figure out how to do this. And then I got in and then I stayed in till after it closed. Wow. Wow. You should only use your mayoral photographer badge when you're wearing like a Mac or a trench coat, you know, you'd be like, hey, talk to the badge, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I also had visions of you uh, trading up hats. So you're starting off with an NYPD hat and then you get your FBI hat and just see how I can go. I could wear a stack of them. But I mean, that was, you know, that's a typical New York street guy move, right? I'm thinking, I need a hat. Oh, there's a hat. What the hell's it doing there? Oh, it's my hat. I still have the hat. I'm sure you do. Yeah. What a great thing. To I do. I have, I have all my paraphernalia. Mm. Wow. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable thinking about it, that, that they made it so difficult for, for it to be documented. Like you had to really scheme. I mean, I guess that's a photography career in a, in a nutshell right there, kind of grafting and like figuring your way through obstacles. Well, people just, and just, yeah. And people just freak out in a, in a, in a disaster like that, don't they? Like even the, all the emergency services don't know what the hell they're doing and they're just there. They're, instinct is to just shut anything down that <laughs> might come their way because they're scared. Well, you know, in, in, in this case, I think the mayor had a point, but he didn't know how to do it judiciously. What he didn't want was all those commercial photographers who work for the news media to start to make money selling, like paparazzi, mm -hmm. selling pictures of the dead. Yeah, or doing things inside. So he thought it would be easier to ban everybody. But I wasn't in there for that. I wanted to go and make a record. I, I actually formed a team of six photographers, a video person, and an oral historian. And John Tchaikovsky was one of the photographers. Tom Roma, John Tchaikovsky, Gus Powell, Mary Ellen Mark, um, forgot who else, I, a couple of other young photographers. And I, I wanted us to go in as a unit, like the Farm Security Administration in America during the Depression, the FSA mm. works. You may have seen those kinds of the pictures. Mm. I wanted to document with a whole team. But when the mayor said no and nobody else was giving me permission, I thought, okay, I got to do this myself. You know, I'll do, yeah. what I, I'll do what I can. Amazing. But I really didn't, I didn't want to be the sole one. I didn't want the glory. I wanted to do this in the most professional way, giving other people a chance to be um, a team mm. doing something of, of merit. And, sen yeah. and, and sensitively as well. That's the, the key. I mean, there, there are no more, I mean, that's about as challenging as you can get photographing a, a scenario like that. Dangerous. Deeply dangerous and, and yet life-affirming and, and in many ways uplifting where you wouldn't expect it to be uplifting. Mm. Uh, it, it was transformative and it changed my life for, mm. for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good good to have that instinct to want to document. Like, I know when um, when the when coronavirus hit hit bad here, you know, I, I've immediately phoned up Alan just to talk about it, and uh, we were both like, we just want to get want to get out there and shoot it. Unfortunately, with 
it's a little bit more complicated in this period because, you know, with, with 9-11, you were putting your own health and well-being on the line. But obviously we have to be a little bit more careful in these circumstances because we it might be we might be putting ourselves out, you know, on a, going out on a limb, but we also might be potentially hurting others. So it's a bit more complicated. But still the, sure. the desire to get out there and shoot is, is, a, is a good thing, I think. Yeah. Well, I've got my. Uh, we've been given like an out, you know, like one outing to do exercise a day. That that's that's what the uh, yeah. prime minister has, has said. So I'm kind of using that time to just. I take my camera out and just uh, grabbing a couple of pictures here and there. Uh, but there, it's just yeah. so just so much stuff going on that it's just really really uh, fascinating. Yeah. So well, thinking about. Um Moving back onto onto your work and uh, thinking about the book which I was reading this morning in the kind of in the run up. Which to this, book was, is this we're talking about? How I make photographs. Oh, that's right. There were a couple the of ones. things in the book that really stood out to me. Uh, one thing I, I'd like to be best to hear you explain was uh, the phrase "entre chien et loup" that you talk about a little bit around the magic hour. Um, wonder if you could just explain to people what that phrase means and why it's important to you. Entre chien et loup is the French way of saying. Dusk, the blue hour. They don't say. They also say le bleu, but but between the dog and the wolf is what it translates as, right? Mm. And and what is that? The dog is the is the tame, friendly thing, and the wolf is the unknown, right? And yet they're both that kind of animal. They they're related in some way. Dogs are descended probably from wolves somewhere along the line. And so the French use it as between the known, the dog, and the unknown, the wolf, or between the tame and the savage. And it's that hour when you're, if you're walking alongside in the blue hour and you're outside a cemetery, you start to have that little feeling of, "Mm, what's going on in there, (laughs) you know? And so I had been making these photographs of, of that hour using the view camera, because the view camera looked into time and fading light in a very interesting way. And I had this French friend of mine who was my swimming partner for 30 years. We swam open water on Cape Cod. And when I showed Danielle these photographs, he said, oh, entre chien et loup. And I said, what's, what, like you said, what's, what's that? And he said, oh, it's between the dog and blah, 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 blah. And he, you know, he gave me this thing. And I realized, oh, yes, it's when things are somewhat less known and maybe have a mysterious component. Mm. You know, they're ambiguous. And photography is really very good at ambiguity. Photography mm. loves ambiguity, mm. right? Because if you don't put a, a title under the picture, it has a range of readings, and and that's what makes it so interesting. There was another thing in the book that um, stood out to me I quite liked is where you were talking about um, lens choice and thinking about it in terms of what's your lens and it's the way you experience the world. So if you're someone who kind of hones in on these really small moments and sees those details, you know, maybe you're someone who needs a longer lens. If you're kind of a person that more stands back and takes a lot in, then something wider is probably better for you. And I, I quite like yeah. that as it being like your your mind's eye, the lens. Well, exactly. I mean, I you know, everybody, all of us are different. I mean, think about when you go to a party. There's always someone who stands back, right? They, you know, they, they don't socialize easily. They don't mix. Uh, or they talk from, you know, a coronavirus distance, <laughs> you know? Um, and then there are other people who like to be really close, hands-on and be in the intimacy of it because they need to see the person's face that they're talking to and watch all the emotions float across this, you know, the, uh, the face. So we each have a distance that we feel comfortable at. And I think you choose a lens. I mean, your initial choice from that. Uh, because I remember when I, I, I borrowed a camera my first camera was a borrowed camera, and it was a Pentax, and it had a 50 millimeter lens on it. Mm. It might have even been 55 millimeter. And, uh, and you know, I started using it, but I, I was so frustrated. Within two or three weeks, I thought, what's wrong? What? I, I, I knew nothing about photography, mm. nothing. So I, I had to try to understand, 
you know. And I kept on having to get further away to get more stuff in, but I didn't like being further away. And so I went into a camera store, like a like really like like such an innocent. And I said to the guy behind the counter, I'm borrowing this camera from a friend and, and it's got this lens on it, but I'm always too far away. What do I need if I wanna if I wanna be closer? What do I need? And the guy reached down, and he said, You need a 35 millimeter lens. And it was like and, and he and he kind of he kind of showed it to me, and I said, Well, what is that lens? And he says, It's it's a Zeiss Flectagon lens. It's a great lens, kid. It's a great lens. I said, you know, like, how much was it? And it was around $50 or something like that, you know, back then, 1962. So I said, hold it for me and I'll, I'll come and get, I'll get some money and I'll come and get this lens. And then I went looking to see if the lenses were cheaper or better elsewhere and they weren't. So I went back to him and I bought that lens and that lens was a gem. It was, it was a Zeiss lens. Mm. I mean, my God, it was, mm. and it was fast. For that period, it was like an F. F2.8 or something. It was a big piece of glass. But I used that for a couple of years, and, and it was my go-to lens. Nice. I shoot with a 24 most of the time, which a lot of, pe a lot of people don't like that lens, but I, I love it. I find 24 uh, just suits. I don't know. When I first tried it, it was just like, ah. Oh. There yeah. you go. Ah, ah, right. this, this, yeah, I got, this I got it all now. Yeah, yeah this syncs up yeah. with, with what I'm trying to do because I was trying to do it with a 35 and I and I had similar experience of being a little bit uh, frustrated and going like, I'm running out, like especially on like the underground. I was shooting a lot on the on the underground. Yeah. I was like, I, I've run out of platform, you know, like I'm against the wall now mm. kind of mm. thing. <laughs> but I can't, get, I can't get everything in. Yeah, well, you know, and we all adapt lenses for the purposes that make us feel good. I mean, that, that it's, it's the most direct way of, of being as a photographer. First, to understand what you need. Yeah, the, yeah. The fact that you, that you got to that point, Alan, is, is shows you you were using your head. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to try. I, I always recommend people just shooting one lens for a, for, a, for a while. And then you figure out whether you like it or not. There's no forum that can tell you what you need. You have to just kind of do it and then deduce what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And yeah. I, I now carry like a bunch of lenses, but the 24 is my, my guy. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, each of us has to be uncomfortable at a certain point, right? And that discomfort makes you make a new decision. Perturbed. Oh, you know, I need... <laughs> Right. Yeah. It, it helps you to grow because you realize I can't fit in this any longer. I don't belong. I don't belong in this frame of reference. Yeah. I must, I need something else. Yeah. The crazy, I, I was in Bangkok and I, for some reason, I borrowed a, uh, it was like a 200 mil R lens, uh, Leica lens. And I put it on my, on my, on my camera and 200 mil is like the most stupid focal length for street. Uh, but I tried it and it was really hard but then after four or five days I got into it and I was producing really different looking pictures that I've never seen before sure uh, but I still I, I mean it was huge so this thing it was massive just not practical and people could see you coming a mile <laughs> you got this huge thing yeah well I you know for many years I made a living because you couldn't there were no galleries in New York in the beginning mm. And and when there was a gallery, there were the the sales were nothing, and they, you know you could expect twenty five dollars for a picture or something like that. So uh, because I had been an art director, I knew how to do advertising, and um, I bought a um, hundred and eighty millimeter Zeiss Sonar lens that had belonged to Alfred Eisenstadt. Ooh. He he sold his lens for a new Nikon lens. He sold his German lens. And this lens was the fastest telephoto lens there was. It was an F2.8, and it could focus down to about four feet. Wow. And it, it was designed by Zeiss for Hitler's girlfriend, who was a, uh, a butterfly photographer. And Hitler asked Zeiss to make a lens for her. Anyway, Eisenstadt had this lens from Germany. Yeah. He brought it brought it with him to New York 
and I adapted it to my Nikon. I think he may have adapted it to his Nikon, so I use it on my Nikon. And um, I use it in advertising. My, it was my moneymaker, yeah. you know, because it, it flattened everything out. But o over the years, there were times when I was out with it and on a street, going from, you know, one agency to a next or whatever, and I would shoot with it, just like you did. Yeah. And, and sometimes you get back stuff that's just unbelievable, you know. I mean, it's different. It looks different. Yeah, you get like the a compression. The, the, yeah. Right. The focal length is different. Yeah. The field is different. But it brings you into intimacy in a way that's just like, Wow. Yeah, it's cool. So cool. It's almost it's, cool. it's almost like a wildlife. It, I, I felt like I was a wildlife photographer, yeah. but on the street. Yeah. It, it was it was odd. <laughs> but yeah, it is it, cool it, once it, in a while, true. isn't it? It's true. I, yeah, I would love to like uh, talk about perturbing your process. I mean, maybe we could do this through Candela at some point. I would love to just send out like Nikon cool pics, point and shoot to a load of really fabulous photographers and just kind of get back 20 just really just see what they come up well, with the, and just the, see, see what comes yeah. out yeah there, there's a series on uh on on youtube uh, a guy called kai wong ran this thing called digital rev and they had a thing where they would give famous photographers like the worst ca digital cameras they could buy like two megapixel you know, or like these novelty cameras that were for children, you know, that like in the shape of a dinosaur with a camera on the end. And they just, and, and it's, it's really fascinating to watch because uh, people still come up with cool stuff. Yeah. If you've, uh, if you know what you're doing and it doesn't matter too much. Well, I've experienced that. In 1999, I got a call from Japan from the Olympus camera company saying that they had just built the first digital camera, 1999, and they were going to fly a tech over from Tokyo to meet me on Cape Cod. Would I use their camera <laughs> to make some pictures to see if my way of looking would be supported by this camera? The camera made a file of like 1.4 megabytes. Imagine a file, 1.4 million. Yeah, iPhone is so, better than that. So I have been shooting digital since 1999. I've got 21 years of digital. You know, I've got over 150,000 files on my Lightroom. Mm. Only digital work. I shoot only digital now, except if I'm doing a big project with the view camera. Mm. But but um, I'm content with digital. I, I did a lot of testing years and years ago. When, when they first started getting good, you know. But the, the funny thing was I made a lot of very subtle pictures, the kinds of things that were so delicate that a digital camera, you know, was really in trouble making these pictures. Mm. They loved them. They thought that they were like, uh, you, you know, miniature 8x10 photographs, you know. <laughs> very, very delicate, you know, moody landscapes and things like that, portraits of people, some street shooting. So I, I've worked with the worst, you know, and now I work with the best. And, and um, you can make pictures no matter what. You can make pictures. Yeah, it's true. Well, maybe if, uh, if this coronavirus fog ever, ever lifts over us, we can uh, we'll all go out and shoot together on the streets of London sometime. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're here. We're here frequently now. Although we live in Italy, yeah, um, we're here six six weeks at a time. Every couple of months, we come up and we just hang out here and see friends and walk the streets and go to some theater or. Yeah, I mean, I think you've nailed it. Uh, New York, London, and Tuscany—just like nice. Yeah, well, I'm hardly I'm hardly in New York though. I got to tell you, I'm you know pretty much. I mean, my kids are there, so I, I go to see them, and my studio is there. Yeah. Um, but but really, I don't need to be there any longer. You know. I, one I, that reminds me actually. One last uh, question: Thinking about uh, the kind of the aesthetics of seventies New York and stuff. Um, what did you make of HBO shows? Because uh, we obviously we 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 do we talk about film and TV on this podcast a lot as well. What did you make of the Juice? I didn't see. It. You didn't see it, okay? I well, didn't. That's my I didn't. I didn't see it. Have you heard because, about it? Because I, I can't get HBO in Italy. Well, I'll try and I I'll dig out and send it to you. Have, you. have you heard about it? The show? I heard about it. I don't know anything about it, but I, I heard people say, you know, you should really see this one. But what? <laughs> what what's what, what's your take on it? 
So it's uh, it's by David Simon who made The Wire um, and it's just a kind of a period piece on New York in the 70s and 80s and how the porn industry kind of grew out of uh, from prostitution and street walking and it's the but all the period elements are done so beautifully and most of it is out actually shot on this on the streets and it's a lot of street scenes and uh, it's just it's a yeah it's gorgeous and it's it moves and even though it's about porn it's mostly just set in kind of like gay bars and dive bars and it's just a real kind of like portrait of New York nightlife which is quite irresistible so uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> I have to get it to you in some way shape or form because I think you'd get a kick out of it it was it was a great period I used to go to all the clubs you know yeah. I was I, I even had some uh, some events you know like after show parties in the big clubs I, I knew all the all the guys who owned and managed the clubs so uh you know, I had a, a good couple of years of dancing and hanging in mm. the club. <laughs> you, were you down at Studio 54? Yeah. The Tunnel, Danceteria. Yeah. I had, Lovely stuff. Yeah. My, my friend Todd Papageorge did a whole great bunch of pictures in Studio 54. You ever see Todd's pictures? No. I saw there's a, a documentary, up, wasn't there, recently that was, uh, I think I maybe had some of his photographs in it, but yeah. Maybe, but look up Todd Papageorge. He's uh, he's a wonderful photographer. Yeah, and yeah. He was at a he was at a good moment in his life and good shooting moment. Nice. Well, listen, this is, this has been fun. Thanks yeah, for man, wanting thank to you do this. Much, I I I look forward to the day when we could actually take a walk on the street together and yeah, get to get to meet each other in person and not not digitally. That would be wonderful. Yeah, we're both a couple of Soho rats, so uh, yeah, when the times change, <laughs> we'll, we'll take you out uh, around our, our favorite spots. Good, good. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, thanks so much for your, yeah, for your time, thank Joel. You. Yeah, thank you very much, Joel. Thank you, too, both of you. I, I'll look forward to seeing you and your work. Thanks for listening to Candela. You can keep up with future episodes and news on the show on our Instagram at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A Podcast. We will also be posting photography and cinematography that we like on there. You can also find us on YouTube and Vero.